This is the Man Up Podcast, the doctor's guide to men's health. Each week on our podcast, we interview the top specialists of the field on various topics in men's health. You have questions that you are too afraid to ask? We have the answers. Today's episode is a very important topic, opioids, and we seek to answer the question, do I need to take Percocets after surgery? I'm Dr. Kevin Chu, and I'm joined as always with my co-host, Dr. Justin Dubin. Justin, why is this topic so important in the context of surgery? Hey, Kevin, thanks for having us. Always good to be here. Um, you know, I think it's very important because with everything that we, we've learned about opioids, Percocet, um, a lot of people know that, you know, we're trying to reduce its usage. And, and a lot of that comes to when is it necessary? When is it necessary? We were over prescribing it for a long time. And we'll get into the data on that later. But when it comes to things like surgery, we're not often discussing with, with patients or, or the data is really not out there for, our, our, for, for the average person to know. I'm having surgery. I'm going to have pain. Do I need Percocet for pain control? Uh, because, you know, they do the job, right? They can help with pain. That's what they're known for. So in the scenario where I am getting surgery, should I be expecting to get Percocets or another kinds of opioids like morphine, dilaudid? For, for my pain control? Is it indicated? When can I get it? Should I be worried about getting it? These are the kind of questions, you know, uh, that, that haven't really be, been discussed, I think, enough. And I think you would agree. Um, and I think to start it off, we kind of just have to understand for, for most people, what is an opioid? So just for a clarification, opioid is a class of a drug that is naturally found uh, uh, in the opium poppy plant. And it does have a, a variety of effects, including pain relief, um, but there are other effects that we'll go into, of course. And it is one of those popular pain meds uh, that has been used over the last 20, 30 years that has really caused a huge epidemic of addiction. Uh, a lot of opioids that you may be familiar with include Percocet, Oxycontin, Morphine, Vicodin, Fentanyl, and of course, everyone knows heroin, which is probably uh, uh, one of the... Uh, biggest issues that we, we have uh, that, that is the end point of a lot of these addiction cases. Um, so Kevin, we've had a lot of experience over the last few years, you know, as surgeons experiencing pain, who experiencing pain management with our patients, right? We've, we've had always, we're, we're operating four or five days a week, and we have to figure out ways to make sure our patients are comfortable after surgery. And I know you've had some stories, I've had some stories. So go ahead and just uh, elaborate on, on some of the things you've seen with regards to opioids and, and Percocet and pain control. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a patient actually that uh, we had a few years ago. He was a young man who was born with an anatomical abnormality near his kidney. Uh, his urine just wasn't draining appropriately. So, uh, we, you know, we had to do a surgery and it was, it was a flank incision. And those, uh, those incisions can hurt uh, postoperatively. Uh, so we did everything we could, uh, you know, to kind of manage the pain and prevent them to have pain afterwards. But, uh, you know, surgery was a success, uh, but the pain control was an issue for him afterwards. Um, and, you know, as we saw him a couple of years later uh, afterwards, uh, just in the, you know, routine post-operative care. And, you know, he had kind of found a way, you know, he kind of got addicted to uh, Percocets and um, it had kind of taken him down a dark, dark path. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, you, we kind of prescribe these medications, just, you know, giving a few tablets here, but, you know, patients can go out, they find them out on the black market and it can take them uh, to dark places and the physician may never know. Uh, that's what has happened. 
You're right. And, uh, and I think that's important that over the last few years, and we're going to introduce Dr. Dean shortly, who has been very important at the University of Miami and helping change that perspective in the use of opioids and, and how, how we manage pain here, um, at least from definitely from a resident and patient care standpoint. But, you know, we, we're, we've been at Miami for five years and, you know, in the beginning, and this is everywhere across the country, this isn't just here, you know, you had, you had surgery, no matter what, small procedure, we didn't even cut you. We did something where we went inside your bladder or we put a stent uh, for your kidney. You were probably leaving with opioids. You were probably getting three days of Percocet. You had a bigger surgery. You were getting Percocet for seven days, minimum sometimes. And over the last few years, knowing what we know now of how addictive they are, the negative effects, we really have transitioned to virtually no one getting opioids at our institution. And, I, and it's a very, it's an amazing thing that I think we're, we are all very proud of. I know very Dr. Proud. Dean is very, very happy about, yeah. uh, has been a huge advocate for this. Um, and the stories that we hear are like Kevin's, but more recently, since we've, we've stopped giving them, I, I, there's some other interesting things happening. Like we, we do hold, uh, you know, outpatient pagers, we manage patients in the outpatient setting. And often the same day that a patient leaves for surgery, they'll give us a call and say, Hey, listen, uh, I think you forgot to give us the Percocets or I don't have any Percocet. I don't have anything. And usually on that call, I just provide them reassurance. And I know Kevin does the same thing. Yep. And we discuss alternate alternative pain meds. And it's, I think it's important to note that their patients aren't calling because they have poorly controlled pain. They're calling because they have the expectation of a Percocet exactly. or some yeah. other opioid or pain medication. So they're not calling for pain. They don't have Percocet. They don't have opioids. They're not complaining about pain. But this expectation that we've set over the last 20 or 30 yep. years that we have to kind of fight and reverse now. And uh, I think that we are doing a really exceptional job. And uh, a lot of that, like I said, it has to do with uh, bringing Dr. Dean on board at the University of Miami, and I'm going to introduce him now. So Dr. Uh, Leslie Dean is a associate professor at the University of Miami here. He's an, he focuses on endourology, minimally invasive and robotic uh, surgery. Uh, he originally trained uh, his medical school at the University of the West Indies. Um, at Barbados, where he's originally from. He did his uh, uh, training at the University of Toronto and fellowship at UCLA Irvine, and he is now here with us. Thank you, Dr. Dean, for joining us today. Thanks, uh, Justin and Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here with you this, this morning. Yeah, this is really fun. So, um, let's get right into it. So, do you have, you know, we talked about our, 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 unique experiences or our experiences as surgeons with Percocet and pain control. Can you give us a little bit of a, a background on the epidemic, some data, some statistics on what's been going on and, and why this is, a, is an issue that we need to focus on? Yeah, great, uh, great introduction. I, you know, I think that obviously everyone knows that this has been a major scourge in the, in the United States over the uh, past few decades and certainly uh, much more focus has come uh, on this in, in, in recent years because the numbers of, of people that are affected by this is, is just, uh, you know, to put it 
plainly it's 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 staggering you know we have about 50,000 people dying from opioid involved over overdoses every every year uh that's a lot and like you said before you know these relate to pain relievers that have been prescribed they relate to um synthetic opioids and they relate to hep- uh to heroin uh and the synthetic opioids being uh, things more like uh, along the lines of fentanyl you know obviously this costs a tremendous amount to the not only to the healthcare system but from loss of productivity uh, addiction treatment the criminal justice system everything literally at every level is is involved in in, in dealing with this you know we know that uh, almost uh, three quarters of a million people suffer from a heroin use disorder and close to a million people have used heroin in the last year. So this is a, a, a tremendous, uh, a tremendous issue. Uh, uh, when we look at what happens after uh, patients are introduced to these medications, either by prescription or um, borrowing some from a friend if they, if, if they have pain, we know that up to 30% who are prescribed opioids uh, for chronic pain misuse them. And between eight and 12% of the people go on to develop an opioid use disorder. And that's, that's just a staggering statistic. Uh, additionally, we know that overdose deaths vary based on the state that you're in. So for example, here in Florida, you know, between 15 and 20 per 100,000 people die of an opioid related death every year. And the states that, yeah, it is, you know, the states that have the highest incidences are Ohio, Maryland, Massachusetts, New, New Hampshire, West Virginia. Uh, and these are states that 30 people, uh, upwards of 30 people per 100,000 die per year. Uh, you know, so you may ask, how, how is this related to urology? And, and, and more broadly speaking, how is it, how does it relate to, uh, to surgical practice in in general, and you know, I would pose this to to you both. You know, let's say you you know you're a busy urologist and you do about 300 major cases a year. Uh, you prescribe, let's be conservative. Let's say you prescribe 15 tablets for each of those, uh, five milligrams each mm-hmm. over a 10 year period. So this is when you are now starting out. This is when you're sort of getting your your feet wet as a as a surgeon. Yeah, right. Uh, that means you dispense two hundred and twenty-five thousand milligrams. That's crazy. That's absolutely that's, nuts. You know, right? when you put that's those nuts. numbers like that, that's insanity. <laughs> that's way too yeah. many. <laughs> yeah, and remember, there are over thirteen thousand urologists in the United States. So, so this is uh, this is a serious, uh, you know, serious magnitude uh, problem, and you know, generally speaking, quantities of anything that are in this of this magnitude would would ring alarm bells all over the place wow so you know i know we touched on the addiction potential of uh you know opioids but what are what are some other reasons that opioids are just not the ideal pain medication after surgery that's a great great question there there are several reasons uh in addiction in addition to uh to addiction um, and, and for these reasons, we should try our best to steer away from 
opioid-based uh, regimens for pain control. Uh, so if you look at the, uh, the respiratory system uh, and for patients listening, you know, think well, the system that helps you to, to breathe, the system that um, exchanges oxygen and carbon dioxide in the, in the body and basically is necessary for, for living, uh, opioids depress that system. What does that lead to in a post-operative patient? Well, it leads to areas of, of, uh, of collapse in the alveoli of the lungs. So the little oxygen exchange components of the, of the lungs, um, they, they become compressed uh, from laying in bed uh, and puts you at risk for developing pneumonia. Uh, when you're laying on your back in bed, your ambulation is reduced. You don't you don't want to get up and walk, and the and the sequelae of that are pretty are pretty clear in terms of developing blood clots or deep venous thromboses in the in the legs, and those same blood clots when they when they break off they go to the lungs, which obviously can be a, a fatal event. When we look at the other major system in the in the body, the gastrointestinal system. Uh, postoperatively, we always want patients to resume their normal function as quickly as, as they can. Well, uh, the other thing we need to do besides breathing is, uh, is eating and, and drinking to maintain our nutritional status, promote healing postoperatively, and uh, opioids slow down the intestine. So a condition that we call ileus, it basically results in sort of a beach ball effect of the abdomen where you where you distend, the um, uh, food is not able to move through the intestine, and that creates a, a lot of discomfort. It also increases the risk for something called aspiration, which is where if you're sleeping or you happen to vomit during the day because you're somnolent from, uh, from the opioid medication, you're a little drowsy, uh, you don't protect your airway as, as good as you normally would, and that risk contents from the stomach getting into the lungs, which can be a serious problem. The other thing that a lot of people obsess about, and this also relates to the gastrointestinal system is constipation, right? Many That's people are, yeah. yeah, many people are obsessed about the, you know, when the proverbial trains arrive and more importantly, when they leave. It's <laughs> a very depart. important thing. Oh, uh, listen, I think not, not leaving is bigger than leaving too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> correct, correct. Uh, you know, so we put a medication that's going to cause constipation on top of already being in an unfamiliar situation. Uh, unfamiliar people in and out of the rooms, uh, a restroom that's not only used by you, but has been used by multiple other people. <laughs> All of those things can, can impact on, on a patient's psyche post-op and also compound the constipation problem. That's great. So we basically have someone who's, who's breathing less efficiently, not able to walk as well as they can. They, we would like them to, because post-operatively we would like them to walk they're get a, get a greater risk for getting clots because of that. They can potentially get worse infections because they're not breathing as well. They're also potentially swallowing into their lungs. Um, and then they're having constipation. They're not getting their bowels going. And one thing about constipation that I think is also important is that a lot of patients after surgery, we don't want them to strain. That can cause issues with herniation. That can cause issues right. with bleeding. And if you're constipated after surgery, you're, you're, you can't help it, to, but you're going to want to strain. Yeah. Right. So, you know, exactly. it, that is a, is another thing. And uh, so, yeah, your pain may be, re be relieved. 
but it comes at a cost. And that's where I think it, it comes to the next question that we want to ask. If we don't want to use opioids in the acute surgical setting after you get surgery, what can we replace them with? What are the options for medications that, that patients should feel are they're going to get adequate pain control after surgery? Because that's the, that's the point, right? Everyone's scared to get surgery most of the time, not because of, you know, the complications we discuss during the surgery, but because of the pain after. So what can we do to what, what our medications patients are expecting or can expect as alternatives to opioids? Right. So, you know, again, a superb question. I, I think the short answer is absolutely we can operate and not use opioids, but it's, it's complicated, right? We can't, we can't just stop using them. We have to, we have to incorporate other medications, other modalities, techniques. We have to liaise closely with our anesthesia colleagues, with the, with the pain service to come up with what is the, what is the best uh, uh, approach for each individual patient? And we have to define the goals. Uh, you know, we need to know what those, what those goals should, should be. So, you know, when we, when, we look at, when we look at this, in addition to taking this comprehensive approach, it's important for everyone in the, in the team to, to really have a fundamental knowledge of the mechanisms of surgical pain genesis. Right, we need to know what we are dealing with, and that enables us to to better understand uh, how to how to address it. Uh, you know, so it's important for the for the surgeons, for the anesthesiologists to really talk about the you know the dermatomal distribution where where on the skin is pain going to be referred to from from various organs. We need to differentiate between somatic or surface type pain, pain on the skin, pain in the muscles versus visceral pain, pain from the, from the organs, because both of them have very different qualities and require, and require different approaches. So, you know, how do we take, uh, what kind of approach do we take to, to this? You know, basically, um, if you look at what we, what we know in modern medical parlance as ERAS or early recovery after surgery, basically a number of mechanisms by which we can uh, treat pain, early ambulate, prevent complications, get people out of hospitals safely uh, and, and quickly. We don't want people staying longer than they, than they need to. The pain management really uh, features majorly in, in, that, um, in that regard. Uh, you know, I, our practice, we, we tend to use more of a bare bones approach with a, you know, with a true ERAS protocol, you could be given 20 different drugs, you know, and if we're trying to eliminate one class of drugs, how can we then uh, administer 20 others? It, it, it kind of, you know, it kind of is, uh, you know, a little rubs you the, a bit of the wrong way. So we, we tend to use a more, you know, a more bare, bare bones approach. So, so our anesthesia team is, you know, is excellent at, at all the places we, we work and, um, you know, they do a combination of things uh, intravenously uh, during procedures to, to help people go to sleep easy, help them wake up easily. Um, you know, I won't talk about all of the, how all about of the drugs, but 
Yeah, yeah, but so how about the you know the specific things that you you like you know because I know you do a great job. I, I've seen it the way that you do it for the patient. Like you know, what medications are they getting in that immediate post-operative period uh, that you like them to be on? Right. So so great. Well, what we do is that we we start off the procedure by giving a rectal suppository of acetaminophen. And that's basically the active component of Tylenol, correct. Uh, And, you know, that's that's slow to absorb, but it lasts a long time when it is administered uh, rectally so that we know that the chances of having to uh, administer something very soon after is lower with rectal Tylenol than it is, say, for example, with oral Tylenol or it is with intravenous Tylenol. The other thing that we that we do is we have the anesthesiologist give uh, ketorolac or toradol, which is what we call a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, very much like an ibuprofen type medication that is um, that is administered intravenously. So that would be given before they wake up. Right. That's it's basically like we, a super it's a super to, uh, ibuprofen, pretty much. Is that how we describe it often? Right. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, from a surgical standpoint, I think we have to make sure that the types of incisions that we choose to do are those that are associated with the least pain. Uh, so, you know, things in the midline of the abdomen tend to be quite painful because all, all of the muscles are pulling against them. Transverse incisions or incisions that go across the abdomen tend to be less painful. And the classic example of that is the cesarean section type. Uh, incision. Um, so, you know, you, when we talk about multimodal, we really mean multimodal. And then at the end of every case, I, uh, I inject all of the sites of incisions with a lot of local anesthetic that basically will last for anywhere to sit from six to nine hours. Uh, postoperatively so that the goal is when a patient wakes up they they really don't have any pain and they can't tell you where the incisions are without feeling their abdomen for the glue or for the or for the or for the bandage you know Uh, and I think that that's key you know we live in an emoticon sort of uh, sort of era and the, the emoticon that you want to describe your patients with in the post-operative recovery room is that nice smile with the rosy cheeks (laughs) feeling good as opposed to the blue forehead, the tears, uh, and and basically, you know, uh, insignificant distress. So it sounds like the, the medications that we're using now, and we've used it with you, both Kevin and I, we're really focusing on Tylenol usage, super ibuprofen, Toradol, and a lot of local anesthesia. And this is now during, this is preoperative during, during the surgery, perioperative, at the end of yeah. the surgery, perioperative. And I can attest, Kevin can attest that we have seen the patients, you know, four hours after surgery with you. And a lot of these guys come say, did we do the surgery? And, and you <laughs> love hearing that. I know Dr. <laughs> Dean loves hearing that. He, and he, he's yeah. always smiling after that because you do hear that. And, and it's amazing. And guess what? We used zero opioids, zero opioids, and it works. And it it really sets the tone for the recovery process. You know, we, I've seen the patients who are in pain in the post-operative period and the recovery is a little bit more of a, you know, a little more of a hurdle, but the ones that are morally pain-free in the, in the recovery, they, they do much, much better. 
Right. And now, now we, we talked about now that was a preoperative or, or perioperative during the surgery, right at the end of the surgery. Now, the patients that we often see really stay about one night uh, on these surgeries. You know, we're talking about when you when a patient gets their prostate taken out or they have some other smaller surgery. Obviously, if you get a bladder taken out, that's a bigger surgery. That's a, another discussion. But um, in this post-operative period is typically when we see people giving opioids, right? The patient's awake. They're now, they're now trying to walk. What medications are we now giving them? Obviously the local anesthesia is important because it's going to last a couple hours after surgery. What's the other medications we're providing patients that we can give instead of opioids after surgery? Right. So we, we routinely give acetaminophen, Tylenol and ibuprofen, uh, Motrin. And we, you know, we tell patients take the Tylenol uh, in between meals, take it around the clock and take uh, the non-steroidal uh, with meals because of potential for, for gastric upset, et cetera. Um, you know, but most patients will come in and tell you that they, you know, they took a, a couple ibuprofens on the first, first couple of days and, um, and then they uh, continue to take the Tylenol and, and that's it. You know, we, we haven't been getting any calls for additional medication. Um, you know, and I think that a lot of it helps with the, with the discussion that we have prior to the, to the operation. And, you know, again, I, I keep it simple. You know, I, I basically tell patients, we don't routinely prescribe uh, opioids. If you, if you need something extra, you can get something extra, but the chances of that are very, very small uh, for you requiring it. And I say, you know, we put a lot of local freezing into the, all of the incisions uh, so that when you wake up, you're quite comfortable. And that then allows you to start your diet, start ambulating, allow the muscles to come out of spasm uh, so that when it wears off, you're already well on your way to uh, to doing very well. So, I mean, so yeah, when we're talking with the patient and for the patients themselves, you know, pain after surgery will happen, right? We should expect it. Like patients should not expect zero pain or should they? You know, that's a question. Right, right. I think you're right. Setting expectation is key, right? And, and uh, yes. how do you counsel your patients with regards to, you know, that pain? What are you, so you're telling me you shouldn't have much pain, but when they do have pain, it should be managed, right? Like basically what we've, we've shown, you've shown is Tylenol and ibuprofen. That's about it. And you're going to be fine. And, and I think that that's the shift in mentality, right? That's the shift that we've gone in the last few years when right. patients before were just told that they needed Percocet or they were getting Percocet because they were going to have pain versus, Hey, you're going to have a little pain. Of course you had surgery but it'll be fine if you just take a little Tylenol and ibuprofen. So yeah. I, I think, it, do you think that that is probably the more important shift? Obviously pain management, having patients have no pain or minimal pain that they can be managed with Tylenol and ibuprofen is important, but you, can you just comment more on setting those patient expectations and, and what we need to do and, and what patients should expect after surgery or how they should approach talking with their doctors, at least before surgery? Like how, how should patients ask their, their surgeons about, surg about surgical pain? Good, good question. Uh, so I think that patients should expect to have some pain. 
you know, they will have some discomfort, but this should be easily addressed with the, with the medications that we, you know, that we've been, that we've been discussing. Um, I, I don't think that the focus should be to eliminate opioids because you, you just can't eliminate opioids and expect that patients will be doing, will be doing just fine unless you've incorporated other adjunctive things also like what we've, like what we've discussed. You know, we know from our, from our own data that only about 6% will need some sort of adjunctive medication in the recovery room beyond what we are already giving. Um, you know, it usually is something intravenous and that ties them over uh, for a couple of hours, by which time they are, they are fine. You know, like you said earlier, I, I, I like when the patients, um, when the patients say, uh, did we have this sur- the surgery? Because I, I often tell a, a story and, I, and, I, and I've told you both that, yeah. uh, you know, one of my most hesitant patients who literally begged for narcotics pre-op because he was given them for all of his prior surgeries. He had an appendectomy, a hernia repair. And I, I said, when I, you know, when I told him that we had not given narcotics routinely in over a decade, <laughs> he, he was even more skeptical <laughs> as, to, as to how that was possible, because obviously, you know, a prostate operation is going to be much more involved than a hernia or an appendix. Uh, so I, you know, I assured him that I would see him two hours after surgery and we would see how he was feeling and adjust accordingly. And he is one of the ones that uh, asked when we would be starting. and and these while these are while these are anecdotes a lot of anecdotes come together to to show a a pattern right um you know and that and that's how you know that's how i i i've approached uh i've approached this so things that patients should be asking uh to get back to to your specific question are what are you going to do differently that's going to ensure that i'm comfortable post-operatively uh, and if I'm not comfortable postoperatively, what are you going to do in that situation? And it is about setting it is about building a trust relationship uh, between the physician surgeon and the and the patient that they know that you understand what their biggest concerns are in their recovery period. And once you can establish that trust, the postoperative course usually will be will be fine in terms of pain management. That's a, that's a great takeaway from that. Just, just that trust uh, and just ensuring that, you know, you are going to watch out for that patient uh, and then their interest for managing their pain. So, absolutely. so when do you think opioids are actually indicated? (laughs) (laughs) Great, great question. So, you know, we, we've taken a different approach. Uh, And as I said, first and foremost, our goal was not to eliminate opioids. Right. You know, right. that sounds that sounds strange when you first hear it. Um, but I, I would submit to you that our goal was actually to get to a flat line on the on the pain scale. Right. You want to see zero pain for the entire postoperative period. If you eliminate opioids, patients are going to have pain likely above four, five, six and maybe even higher. Uh, so if you're aiming to incorporate techniques into your surgical practice to get to a pain score zero and you fall at two, patients are comfortable, right? So if you just aim to eliminate opioids, you're going to land that five, you're going to land that six, and you're going to be able to say, uh, we don't give opioids and patients do just fine. 
but their pain score is five or their pain score is six. Right. Something you're not, that you're not helping the patient treatment. as much as you should. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I think all of these techniques work in a really complementary manner. Uh, and I think that opioids are indicated in the situation where you are unable to sequentially trend towards that pain score of zero and the patient is still having significant pain, right? And we know that, that if that is happening, the chances of there being a surgical complication increases mm. because we don't Excellent expect point. that yeah. the patients are going to have right. pain. So it heightens our sensitivity as surgeons to look for some other reason to find out why this person is having pain out of proportion with what mm. we expect. But just to bring it back though, cause I, you know, there are non-doctors listening to this, right? So yes. I don't want to freak out people because they are having pain after <laughs> surgery. Right. That doesn't right. mean that there's a complication <laughs> yeah. with surgery, right? Like we have to make Absolutely that clear. Not. You are going to right. have pain after surgery. Right. Um, yes. You know, who decides what is out of proportion of what we would expect is your doctor. So I think to a kind of a takeaway here is if you're in pain after surgery, you should communicate that with your doctor, right? And yes, they will absolutely. they will accommodate how to best deal with that. And obviously what we've been aiming for with a lot of surgeons have been aiming for is finding alternatives to opioids if they're needed we will give them. I don't think anyone's saying that there is, and Dr. Dean has already said, there's, it's not a zero where we refuse to do it. We, if we need to give pain medicines, we will give them. But just because you're in pain does not mean there's a complication with surgery. I just wanted to clarify that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I think too, even, you know, even with major open operations, adjusting where the incision is uh, for the for the least painful site that allows you to do the operation effectively, but add to that with things like epidural anesthesia, uh, various uh, blocks can be can be done in those circumstances. Again, because you wanna you wanna ensure that that early postoperative uh, period is very smooth and as close to minimal pain as you can get, so that the transition then from hospital or from level of care in the hospital to a lower level of care to then discharge allows you to do it without requiring uh, these medications because this is when the you know the the, the spiral of the addiction to uh, chronic use uh, happens when when people are constantly needing additional pain medication mm -hmm. because in the early postoperative period, it wasn't controlled properly. And remember, uh, using opioid type medications can result in a heightened pain sensitivity. So people who are chronically on opioids, their pain threshold is now even lower than it was. You know, that thing called hyperalgesia, right? They basically get more pain or an exacerbated pain response. Uh, uh, to, to what would otherwise not be not be a significant insult, so to speak, but but they're having they're having the pain and there's no there's no denial of that. Right. So that's that's the other reason why we have to be exceedingly cautious. Excellent. Well, this has been a great discussion. I think Dr. Dean's just given a lot of a lot of great information, made a lot of great points. 
Um, and, you know, I, you know, I, I think we're, you know, everyone's making a, you know, a trend to try to make things better, but, you know, it's still out there, you know, there are, you know, still a lot of patients who are dependent on it. So got to continue moving and being progressive about this uh, to try to get over this, uh, you know, this issue. I agree. I, and I think that um, Dr. Dean has provided us with a lot of important information on ways that both doctors and obviously patients are now informed on, we don't need these kinds of medications necessarily after surgery and it's okay to find other options and your pain will be managed adequately without Percocet. And just as a personal note, you know, growing up in New Jersey, I can tell you offhand at least four people I know who have died of Percocet uh, or, or opioid overdoses uh, started off in, in using uh, painkillers, ended up overdosing on heroin. So it is real. It's not like, you know, and I think you said earlier the data, I think there's a lot of people I know personally, someone who has recovered from addiction um, and it is out there. It's real. And this is an important topic. At the same time, I don't think that, you know, we necessarily, you can't, we're not saying you should be afraid of Percocet because there are indicated times where you need them. We are going to do our best. And I think every patient should do their best if they can avoid them at, 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 is, is the ideal scenario for, for what we discussed. Um, any final concluding uh, comments or statements you want to make, Dr. Dean, before we wrap this baby up? Yeah, no, I think I think this has been been great. Thanks for inviting me to to give the discussion. And you know, like everything else, this is a work in in progress. And uh, and the more we we come together, the more we put our minds together, the more we modify what we are what we are doing based on other people's experience, based on trials, uh, based on uh, anecdotal evidence. Everything coalesces to to improve the care that we provide for for our patients, and and that really is the ultimate the ultimate goal. Totally agree. All right, so uh, I think it's time for me to wrap this thing up, Kevin. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. Thank you so much for being on the show, Doctor Dean. All right, thank thanks, you so much. It, we really appreciate Doctor Dean for coming on. Uh, as always, thanks for listening to uh, Man Up, a doctor's guide to men's health. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, you can always uh, reach out to Dr. Kevin Chu and I via our social media accounts. Uh, our, my email is also on mine. I think uh, Dr. Chu's is also on his. Um, and uh, you can download, subscribe, listen to us on any podcasting app, Spotify, iTunes. Give us a review, five stars, comment, all you'd like. Always appreciate it. Until next time, thanks for listening to Man Up. Have a good one.